I'm in Detroit. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't have major venture capital backing. You, you name it, we didn't have it. We were the underdogs at every step. That's Josh Linkner, the world's foremost expert on innovation, disruption, and hypergrowth leadership. But with all these deficits, the one thing that allowed us to win at the highest levels was our ability to be creative. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Josh to talk about disruption and innovation. We discussed why you don't have to be Steve Jobs or invent the iPhone to be considered an innovator. And we spoke about the type of mindset that gives business leaders a significant competitive advantage. I think it's our responsibility as leaders, whether it's leaders in our businesses or our law firms or even in our communities, to systematically put ourselves out of business. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Josh is a five-time tech entrepreneur, a New York Times bestselling author, and one of the most book speakers on innovation on planet Earth. So how do you become a world-renowned expert on innovation? We look back to where it all began, in Detroit, Michigan in the 1980s, selling fireworks. The funny thing is I've always taken the path less traveled, and I know it's sort of a cliche, but and I don't say that in a, like I was real confident. In fact, half the time I was feeling insecure, but when I was in a room and there was 20 other kids, like there was 19 of them and one of me. I always kind of felt like a misfit or an outsider. Again, not in a boastful way at all, it was quite the opposite. And, and that led me to make decisions that were uh, generally the opposite of what most people thought. One quick example that comes to mind, I've, I don't think I've ever shared this actually, but uh, when I was 11 years old, I actually started my first business. Now, most people think it was when I was 20 because I started a tech company, but at 11 years old, I started an illegal fireworks company. And company is a strong term because I bought firecrackers from the juvenile delinquent that lived around the corner from me in Detroit and took them to school and sold them to all my friends in middle school. And uh, this was actually kind of funny because I got some real momentum. Eventually, my backpack was so full of merchandise, I stopped carrying books and just started selling firecrackers and bottle rockets and Roman candles. Anyway, this ended with the regulatory burden. I'm sure the attorneys listening would appreciate. The regulatory burden in this case was my uh, treasury department. So I, I stuffed all my profits, crumpled up $20 bills in my underwear drawer. And regrettably, uh, my mom came in, discovered the profits, and the business was shut down. So, so even though this is sort of a ridiculous story, it actually, I learned a lot. Like I learned to identify a market opportunity and find distribution and figure out how to sell. And so it was, uh, I was punished and grounded for many, many months afterwards, but it was an interesting start to an entrepreneurial career. So it's interesting you mentioned this. I wasn't going to ask this, but since you went down this path, why not? I had this conversation, interestingly enough, with Gino Wickman as well. And he, and he recently put out a book by the name of Entrepreneurial Leap. I'm curious because when I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs, there's 
oftentimes an experience in their early childhood where they were very entrepreneurial from an early age or they were doing something that they could be viewed as outside of the norm. They were delinquent of some sorts. Like, you know, even in my experience, like starting businesses that I didn't even know were businesses, you know, when I was in like elementary school and middle school and then they had to bring my parents in because uh, I was I was selling these uh, almost like these like baseball cards and reselling them to kids and they, they, they viewed it as like gambling. So my question is, do you believe that entrepreneurs, are they born or are they made? Well, so I believe, that, to answer your question directly, that entrepreneurs can be made. That being said, so like I did that when I was young and you did some crazy stuff when you were young and I liked making trouble and all that. But but if somebody is 27 and they want to start a company or they're 43 and want to start a company, I don't think that they should look back and say, well, since I didn't get sent to detention in middle school, I don't qualify. In fact, many of the greatest entrepreneurs started later in life. And there's so many myths about entrepreneurs, one of which is that they love irresponsible risk. In fact, the best entrepreneurs figure out how to mitigate risk. They do what appears to be risky in a non-risky way. So there's so many myths, misconceptions about this, but I just want to encourage people that if you weren't the oddball in school or if you didn't play the violin or dig interpretive dance doesn't mean that you can't be creative. You can be creative wildly in your firms and in your lives. Excellent. And actually on that note, before I guess you could consider yourself an entrepreneur in the in the professional sense, I'm curious, you know, when you began your career as a professional jazz guitarist, like, tell me about that. Yeah, I just fell in love with the art form really early. And and one of the things I love about jazz is that most of what you play is made up as you go. It's it's unscripted. But there are some structural components that hold it all together. And I feel that's very much like what business is today. So I started playing when I was eight, and uh, I put myself through college playing music, actually. Uh, when I was 13, I would sneak into jazz clubs in the city of Detroit, and I had about a 50-50 ratio of getting, them letting me sit in or I'd get thrown out in the alley. But I just love the form. And, and what happened was that honestly became the best teacher for me in business because I'd, I'd actually never taken a business class when I started my first company at age 20. But in jazz, we're, we're, we're thrown in these situations where you have to adapt in real time. You screw something up terribly and you have to course correct. And you have to pass the baton of leadership from one musician to the next. And so those skills, actually, that was the greatest teacher of all in business. I, I learned way more doing jazz than I did ever taking a business class. So then talk to me about that that transition, if you will. How do you go from jazz guitarist to starting one business and a second, then a third, then a fourth, and you know, even becoming a venture capitalist and so on? Like what was that transition like? It sounds crazy, but it was a fairly smooth path. Uh, so at 20 years old, I saw an opportunity to start a tech company. I've always been sort of a tech nerd in addition to a jazz musician. And at the time, this was 1990, you couldn't just go buy a cheap computer at Best Buy. And I saw that PCs were becoming in high demand and that I could mail order individual components from catalogs and assemble them in my college apartment and sell them on campus for a profit. So I started doing that a little bit out of my college apartment, ended up taking a year out of college and, and, and building this little retail business and uh, and sold it. And, and look, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a Facebook-like outcome. And I made so many mistakes, I could write six books about it. But I learned a lot. I mean, I learned what it takes to attract customers and serve demand and hire people. And so it was just this messy act of figuring it out as you go. It was the artist studio approach rather than planning everything meticulously that allowed me to ultimately do pretty well in business. So when you were going into this, I mean, I imagine, did you, this is before Shark Tank, right? So the, you, did you feel that you were an entrepreneur? Was there a desire to be a CEO or was there perhaps a different goal as you were starting these companies? 
you know, it was way before Shark Tank, funny enough, and entrepreneurship wasn't really as glamorized then as it is now. Um, I just like building stuff, man. I just like creating things. I like creating things when I was selling firecrackers. I like creating things when I was playing jazz, and I like creating things today. And what I feel like is I still play jazz. And so maybe the instruments have changed a little bit. I, I write books, and I do a lot of public speaking, and I start companies and sit on boards. But it's all, if you really think about it, playing jazz. It's it's understanding audiences and understanding the artistic aspects mixed with the technical ones. And and to me, I just, I'm a jazz musician, and that's what I still do today, just different instruments. So taking into account those experiences, and then also, it's almost like hyper-specializing and making such a focus on innovation and creativity. Now, we all know, I, mean, I, I, I would argue there's few that would say that innovation and creativity are not important, but you've quite literally made a career out of it. Why, why do you believe it is so important? Well, one thing that I noticed as I was building my tech companies, and specifically the largest one, which is called ePrize, which we started with a blank idea and, and grew to uh, 500 people around the world and, and ended up with a pretty juicy uh, sale. The thing I noticed is that I lack so many things. Like I could just list them. I mean, I'm in Detroit. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't have major venture capital backing. You, you name it, we didn't have it. We were the underdogs at every step. And we were under-resourced and under-capitalized and, and by far not the smartest people in the room. But with all these deficits, the one thing that allowed us to win at the highest levels was our ability to be creative. And that became like our superpower. And as I as I became so excited about that with, with jazz and then business, I realized that this wasn't germane to me. In fact, the research is so clear that all of us have enormous creative capacity. And I just started realizing that, that as human beings, we have this massive dormant resource in, mo in most of us that can be tapped into. And when we do, it just becomes so wildly important and, and, and powerful. And so that, that sort of set me off on this crazy mission to say, could I help elevate people's creativity? Could I take someone up even 5% because a 5% boost in creative output could be a 500% increase in their earnings and their, and their lives for their families and such. So I just went out on this crazy wild mission to help make the world a more creative place. A growth mindset comes naturally to Josh, and he has demonstrated in his research that creativity can be taught. But can someone really learn to be a game changer? And is there a systematic approach to innovation? According to Josh, Absolutely. You can change. But how you define creativity has to change, too. So Harvard University ran a study, and they asked the age-old question, is creativity born or is it developed, you know, nature or nurture? And what they found is that creativity is 80% plus learned behavior. It's like a language. So that means you and me, like even on our worst day with a hangover, have 80% the creative capacity as Mozart or Da Vinci. The problem is most of us don't develop those skills, and it absolutely is a skill or a language that can be learned by almost everybody unless you have a significant handicap. Now, the bad news is that many of us have been taught to become less creative as we grow up rather than more creative, but there absolutely is a systematic approach to cultivate and harness and build your creativity muscle and then ultimately deploy it so you can, you can drive great stuff in your, in your business and your life. Let's talk about the value of innovation because some, someone would hear and say, hey, do I need to come up with the next iPod or whatever it is, basically when it comes to, particularly we speak to a lot of business leaders and entrepreneurs, but in what areas of their business and of their life does, does it benefit to, to really hone that skill? I'm so glad you asked me that because there's another misconception that innovation only counts if you change the world. Like it only is innovation if you save, if you cure cancer or if you, you know, invent the next thing that becomes a billion dollar tech idea. And in that context, and again, that's how most people think innovation only applies to people wearing a lab coat or a hoodie. The truth is that we can apply innovation 
everywhere. So if you run a law firm and your job is to negotiate great settlements or write a brief, why can't you use innovative approaches there? Or what about hiring? Or what about the way you market your law firm? Or what about the way you set up your office? So, so I look at innovation. Imagine it's like a, like a laser gun. You can point that laser gun at giant big stuff, sure. But you can also point that laser gun at little stuff. You can point that at daily stuff like how do I commute to work in a more efficient way or how do I run a better Monday morning meeting or how do I present a more articulate argument to to a jury so I think that it's it's first of all accessible to all of us like literally every human being in every role can apply inventive thinking and creative problem solving to drive better outcomes and the second thing is that innovation counts even if it's small and so in that context I love this notion of small ideas in fact the next book I'm working on Michael is called big little breakthroughs and it's exactly about this how do you call cultivate small everyday ideas in high volume as opposed to just try, trying to swing for the fences. Yeah. Well, and actually in diving in, so now that we know, you know, the value of it, what are some ways, I mean, just some ways to approach this, to foster this, something that, you know, let's say, because some people view it as maybe, maybe they're not Steve Jobs, but they would love to certainly be more innovative. What are some ways in which they can develop that? Yeah, first of all, nothing wrong with Steve Jobs, but you don't have to be Steve Jobs to be innovative. Like that's a pretty high bar. And so if the job if the bar is be Steve Jobs or be or do nothing, most of us will just do nothing. My suggestion instead is reconnect to the creative person that you were as a kid and and look for small ways to practice and build the muscle. When I learned to play jazz guitar, I'd take a good lesson, but I had to practice every day. And that that practice is what allowed me to become good. I didn't start out by creating a, a musical masterpiece. And even you look at the greats like, like uh, Da Vinci, his first painting wasn't the Mona Lisa. Da Vinci first had to learn to paint and love to paint and paint every day and do bad paintings all the time before you get to the good ones. And so what I would suggest people do is look for ways, even five minutes a day, to add a little creativity. That can be something as simple as like ordering your pizza with the pepperoni under the cheese instead of on top or wearing your watch on the other hand or taking a different route to work. But small little acts of injecting non-traditional approaches start to build the muscle and then eventually big things emerge. So I'm curious, like to actually take a step back at this, is why are some people, let's say, better at innovation than others? Are there certain life experiences that they've gone through that have almost put them in a position where they foster that type of skill set uh, without even realizing it, perhaps? I mean, I think there are some natural propensity, you know, like some people are sort of, there is some nature to it, but but the most most of it has to do with how you were brought up and, and your experiences, yes. So for example, if you were taught in school that to follow the rules and gets what the teacher knows and there's only one right answer and don't make any mistakes, you eventually, over time, those messages erode your creative capacity. So keep in mind, this is something already inside us all at birth. We are hardwired to be creative. But over time, our, our society, even well-intentioned parents and bosses they kind of beat it out of us. And just a couple quick examples, Michael. One is that there was a research study, very famous, that interviewed kids in kindergarten. They said, hey, are you a creative person? And 98% of kindergartners said, yeah, of course, I'm creative. They asked the same question to graduating high school seniors, and the numbers plummeted to 2%. So how does that happen? Like you, you enter kindergarten with a full set of crayons and you graduate high school with a single blue ballpoint pen. It's a shame. But the good news here is, is that we can reconnect and rebuild those, those roots. And I remember, so in listening to you speak um, even a week ago, it was interesting to me that you talk about the core mindsets of everyday innovators, but would you say that innovation at its core, is this a skill set or is it really about having a mindset of innovation? 
Good question. You know, not to get overly technical, Anya, but I think it's it's both. So I think it is having a mindset which kind of frames your thinking and 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 your. For example, if you believe I can't be creative, and you're so attached to that belief, I could show you a hundred skills in a row, and you're not going to be creative. So I think it starts with the mindset, and then once you have the mindset, there's skills that you can develop. By the way, like when I learn a new chord in guitar, you say, okay, that's a skill. Someone can learn a chord and they practice it and eventually they they embrace it. That is the exact same way that creativity works. Someone could be in a meeting and do a brainstorm session and come up with no ideas. But then if I teach you a new technique, I teach you a new skill, I teach you a new guitar chord, you're going to come up with 50 ideas. And I've seen it happen. I've seen the stiffest people you've ever met come to life and, and shower the room with ideas because they've learned a new skill. And in your experience, I know you've had a tremendous amount of opportunities, one of which I, I remember reading that you served on, you know, I think over 80 corporate boards, you invested in over 100 startups. And just having that just this sheer perspective, if nothing else, what did you find that the ones that would say were the highest growth, that were the ones that were the most successful, the most aligned, how did those differ in terms of their, their leadership from the ones that may not have achieved that same level of success? Well, it's funny. Uh, in Silicon Valley, there's a uh, sort of this chicken and egg thing. You know, is it do you bet on the horse or the bet on the jockey? And the jockey is the team and the horse is like the idea. And there's all kinds of evidence for both. But I did a social experiment, basically, where I invested in two companies at one point, almost identical time frame. It was the same amount of money, $600,000 in each company. One company had an A team and a C idea. The other company had an A idea and a C team. Almost like clockwork. What happened? The C team managed to screw up the A idea, I lost everything, every penny. On the other hand, the, the C idea with the A team, the A team managed to make the, a, the C idea an A idea. They figured it out. And that became the best, single best performing company in our portfolio. So the first thing I would say is that leadership and people is what matters. But, but not maybe what you think. Most people think of entrepreneurs, you mentioned Steve Jobs, as like these larger than life, charismatic people that like fill up a room and it's all raw vision and passion. Nothing wrong with that, but I found the opposite more true. The entrepreneurs that win are the less bolsterous and they're the ones that are maybe a little bit more quiet and shy and they're willing to listen and they're open-minded and they realize that it's not all about them, it's about the company's success and they, they're, they're willing to course correct and they focus on details and execution rather than just hyperbole. And so uh, interestingly enough, it's those that are willing to, to think about their ability to, to, to adapt along the way. I love it. What were, when you were defining, let's say, the A team versus the C team, what were some of the qualities that made, let's say, the C team the C team and the A team the A team? It was opposite of what you would think. The A team were more understated. They weren't especially gregarious and extroverted. They were really deliberate. They weren't filling the room with hyperbole and BS. They were much more you know, focused on uh, being transparent. They didn't have giant egos. They, they were able to take feedback much more quickly. They were more logical. So all of these things I'm describing, you're like, wait a minute, that's not a creative person. A creative person is like some crazy wild artist Banksy type person, but it's the opposite actually. Those, those people who are more understated actually had the ability to be more creative along the way because they weren't so caught up in their own nonsense. So I don't know if you're familiar. Have you watched the, the documentary General Magic? I have not. I've heard about it. And, I've, and now you've reminded me to go check it out. Oh, you, you wouldn't love it. So in this example, it, in the case of General Magic, this is like one of the probably the 
the most incredible teams in the history of Silicon Valley. Some of the they, they had like Tony Fidel, who invented the iPod later and became the CEO of Nest, and they had people that became like the CEO of like LinkedIn and Pinterest. Like all these great people came out of that company, but the company itself failed. And yet they had like the probably the the most let's say from a skill set standpoint, the most capable people in there. And it seems like great organizations, as we talk about innovation, is having that like flexibility, if you will, the ability to pivot, the ability to adapt to changing circumstances, changing conditions. Um, what role do you find that adaptability plays? It's one of the most important skill sets or and mindsets, I suppose, that, that one can have. I've never seen someone just come up with some idea and then it's just perfect thereafter. That's just, that, that's fantasy land. I mean, the truth is that that starting anything of value, whether it's a law firm or trying a case or whether it's building a, t- a tech startup, these are things that are hard and, and they require that willingness to, to change and tweak as you go. Real-time flexibility and innovation. Those little big little breakthroughs are, is what adds up to, uh, to, to greatness. By the way, speaking of failure, which you brought up, it's such an interesting thing. We've been trained so much about, you know, failure is the worst possible thing. I'll tell you what, I've studied and and personally interviewed many billionaires and captains of industry and celebrity entrepreneurs. Not only do they win more, they fail more. And one of my favorite quotes is, what is the one thing that all great authors have in common? Lousy first drafts. So there's this quote that you said that I absolutely loved, and it was that someday a company will come along and put us out of business it might as well be us. So talk to me about that because it seems that if you carry this kind of mindset, it's almost like you know, the paranoid survive, if you will, that that is very good for any organization. Yeah, I think it's our responsibility as leaders, whether it's leaders in our businesses or our law firms or even in our communities, to systematically put ourselves out of business. You know, in Detroit, my hometown, when, when a new car version comes out each year, By definition, it puts the old version out of business. It's called planned obsolescence. And I think that's an, it's a, a wonderful approach that we should take. The quote that you're referencing is something that I would, I'd said every single day to my team as I grew my businesses, so much that they were sick of hearing me say it. And that's the whole notion that it's our responsibilities to put our previous selves out of business. I do this personally, by the way. I try to put the Josh of six months ago out of business with a new version. I'm always trying to look for ways to upgrade it. Upgrade it, upgrade it. And by the way, this is a, an approach that's used by many of the best of the best. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, one of the great comedians of our generation, uh, he does something really cool. When he's doing stand-up, every single year, he throws away all of his old material, forces himself to start with a blank page. So if you saw him do a standing ovation performance in Vegas and you came back a year later, he won't repeat a single joke. He's forcing himself to upgrade it, to put his old self out of business with a creative newer version. And just just one more thought on this. Today, more than ever, this is is mission critical because today we live in a world of unprecedented change, a, a rate of change like none other in history. So the notion that we can simply rely on what worked yesterday is, is a trap that none of us can afford to fall into. A leader's creativity can take a hit during periods of adversity. Fears and insecurities, real or imaginary, can be barriers to both action and innovation. And yet, in that same environment, true innovators have learned not only to survive, but to thrive. So we think of creativity and innovation often. You think of always like playing offense. So I invented the iPad or I started a new business. And these are all offense type moves where you're, you know, blue sky opportunity and it's all about growth. But we can use creativity and innovation playing defense as well. So if you're trying to, you know, thwart off a a difficult competitor, why not use creativity there? You're trying to increase productivity in your law firm. Why not use creativity there? So in these times of of COVID-19, I think we can do both, frankly. 
We can use the downtime to think about what's our future look like? How can we reimagine it? How can we upgrade it? We have a blank piece of paper like Jerry Seinfeld. How can our firms look better in the future? But we can also use that same creativity to play defense. How do I keep the lights on? How do I serve my clients when people are working from home? And so creativity is a tool that can be used not only for the gains, but also to challenge or to, to play defense against the challenges. So arguably someone's going to be listening and saying, yes, Josh, I've actually, I've, I've asked myself the qu- same question. How do I keep the lights on? And nothing's coming to me. They're, they're like, well, where is that solution lie? What, what is your answer to that? What is a, like a, perhaps there's a better approach to answering questions like this? Because if you ask it and you say, well, I just need the solution. I don't know what it is. What is a way to get there? Yeah. So I'd love to share with the, the, the listeners today, a couple of tactics. You're talking about mindset and then skill set. And so now that we're in the mindset, like, okay, I, I have this talent inside me. What do I actually do with it? How do I bring it out? Here's the thing. Brainstorming, which is the the sort of ubiquitous way to generate ideas, is the perfectly designed exercise to yield mediocre ideas. It's terrible. It's like the worst strategy ever. Here's why. Fear creeps in. And fear, not natural talent, is by far the biggest blocker of creative output. So you start brainstorming, whether it's with your team or even yourself, and you instantly extinguish any crazy ideas because you don't want to look foolish or you're responsible for the idea. And what if someone doesn't like it? And what if it doesn't work? And how am I going to execute it? And all this negativity extinguishes that match quickly. So what you have to do is use a more productive approach. Think about, again, learning like a new guitar chord. This I'll give you a couple quick guitar chords. One guitar chord is a technique which I love called roll storming. Roll storming is brainstorming kind of, but in character. So you're brainstorming as if you are somebody else. So if you're trying to figure out how do I keep the lights on in my law firm, instead of thinking of yourself, who's got to deal with the law firm, maybe you play the role of Elon Musk. Well, no one's going to laugh at Elon for coming up with a big idea. They might laugh at Elon Musk for coming up with a small one. So now you, aka Elon Musk, you're totally liberated. You can say anything you want, no fear. You could say, I'm going to be a movie star or a sports hero or a villain. And so the idea is get your team together. Everybody chooses a character and you have to stay in character while you brainstorm on your actual approach. I know it sounds a little goofy to any conservative attorneys here listening, but like if you play this game, it instantly eradicates the fear. It puts your left brain, it sends your left brain out to coffee and allows your right brain, your creative brain to really flourish. And if anyone just doesn't, uh, I'll just share a quick one. I did this with uh, with a group of executives one time at Sony Japan. I met this guy. This dude was the stiffest human being I'd ever met. Dark suit, white shirt. This guy's like stiff as a board. Anyway, we got him roll storming as Yoda. And I have never seen personal transformation like this. This guy's jacket's off, his tie's undone. He's like leaping around the room. And he filled the whiteboards with ideas. I didn't teach him to be creative. He had that inside him all along, as do all of us. But the role he was in forbid it put him in a new role, he was free. And same thing maybe for the listeners. Maybe you think, I'm a conservative tax attorney. I can't be creative. Put yourself in a new role and your creativity will soar. And speaking of roles, I mean, what role does does environment play? Just in, 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 in brainstorming, which we obviously we do not want to do, but in creativity, maintaining it, innovation, and perhaps even overcoming any blocks. You know, it's funny. When you think about the great works of art, artists, playwrights, musicians, they went to inspiring places to do inspired work, which makes you wonder, why does most corporate America and why do most law firms look like a sensory deprivation chamber with terrible lighting and uncomfortable seating and just awful? It sucks your soul out. So my suggestion would be, if you can't redecorate, is go someplace else to be creative. Take your team on a field trip to an art museum or go out in nature. People you hear all the time, oh, I was on vacation and I came up with an idea or I was walking in the woods or I was in the shower. So 
environment really does matter. Think about the environment of a kindergarten room. It's rich with textures and colors and it's playful, and those kindergartners have tons of ideas. Then you think about that high school classroom with the stiff desks and the number two pencils, and you wonder why there's no creativity. So again, if you can't redecorate your law firm, go on a field trip, easiest thing ever. It's clear that one's environment plays a large role in cultivating creativity. Next up is spotting opportunities for innovation. So what's Josh's advice? How does he face challenges and turn them into opportunities? Anytime you can look for pain points, that's an area for opportunity. When you wake up in the middle of the night at two in the morning and you stub your toe on the bed and you scream at the top of your lungs some great profanity, let's just call it dagnabbit, even though you say something better. Those dagnabbit moments are a heat map for innovation. So if you put yourself in your customers, your clients' shoes for a second, say, what are the pain points? Is it finding the right attorney? Is it managing the stress throughout the litigation process? Is it the uh, interactions that we have and they have to drive to my office and find a parking space? So anytime that you can find a pain point that a customer is experiencing, that's a wonderful place to sort of direct the sights of your innovation gun and shoot aggressively. And I know you earlier, you mentioned the F word, fear. How do you overcome fear, hesitations to... to to try something new. Yeah, a couple thoughts on this. First of all, the best of the best don't remove fear. They proceed not in the absence of fear, but by embracing fear. And again, I've studied amazing creative talents, but you look at like Steven Spielberg or, or Lady Gaga, they don't go on stage with no fear. They, he doesn't write a, a, the next screenplay with no fear. It's the opposite. They learn to, to compartmentalize the fear. So the best way to actually do it is using tactics like role storming. Tactics are good ways to get kind of send the fear out to lunch so you can get down to the work of creativity. You know, one other really fun brainstorming technique, it's called the bad idea brainstorm. So let's say you're like, all right, how can I increase my, my new client flow in my law firm by 21% next year? So first, instead of brainstorming a good way to do it, have everybody brainstorm the worst possible way ever. Like what's the absolute poorest idea? Come up with ideas that are, are illegal and immoral and unethical and totally out of crate, just crazy. So besides everybody laughing and getting in the mood, then you step two, examine all those bad ideas and say, wait a minute, is there a way that I could give it a legit flip? Could I take the essence of the idea instead of doing something that's illegal? Is there a, is there a kernel in there that I could actually flip over and, and make it work? So what this is doing is instead of taking your current baseline and incrementally going up, you're going to so far in the other direction and then dialing it back to reality. And what that does is it, again, removes fear. That simple technique, because if you brainstorm for 10 minutes, what are illegal ideas to solve your problem? You're going to have a great time. You're not thinking about fear because the exercise itself, the technique gets you out of that zone. So let's talk about, I guess, innovation when it comes to, to performance. And, and I, uh, I heard a quote the other day by like, Dylan Fratelli, he's a pro golfer, and he said that in golf, uh, there's really small margins. And the difference between the 10th best golfer in the world and the 100th best golfer in the world is less than a quarter of a shot over a year. And I recall also uh, listening to you when you talked about the, the hot dog eating record and that this was a record for like 90 plus years and then it was shattered. And I'm just curious as to like, it's almost like the four minute mile. What, what is it that leads to that just not? not just an incremental improvement, but quite literally just the gap being distanced so greatly. So, so there's a, a saying that I always write about called every barrier can be penetrated. And it's the notion that no matter how difficult an obstacle may seem or how insurmountable a challenge may feel, if you throw enough imagination at it, the starting point is that there's got to be a way to figure it out. So that's one thing that, that the boldest innovators have in common is that when they see a challenge, they don't throw up their arms in defeat. They get on to figuring it out, to finding a way. Once you have the mindset, then how do you get there? You get there through experimentation. 
So the four minute mile, you know, he that person experimented with lots of different ways. The hot dog example that you mentioned, the guy broke down the, the very process of eating a hot dog, deconstructed it and put it together in a new way. So it's a combination of experimentation. And number two, it's doing the reps, doing the reps. When you see a great singer, you think that he or she was naturally talented. You know how much time that person spent singing and practicing scales? So the myth of creativity is that it's just this instantaneous God-given gift from the heavens. But the truth is, great creators do the reps. I'm no more creative than the next guy. I've probably just done more reps than many people. Now, in going into anything like this at, at any any high level where there's a lot of competition, the margins are thin, Is should there be a mindset or is it more productive to have an exponential mindset than, a, than perhaps an incremental one? I mean, I know in the case of like Kobayashi, the record was something like 25 hot dogs for like 90 plus years. He shatters at first attempt. I think it was like 50 hot dogs, not 26 or 27, but 50, like quite literally not looking at it. How do I do it a little bit better? But how do we really just try transform this entire dynamic? Think about it this way. Think about innovation, the word, just the word, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O. Okay, so the word innovation. Think about the three, three flavors of it. Innovation in all caps. So all caps innovation, think about that as the giant breakthroughs, you know, the exponential change, eating 50 instead of 25 hot dogs. That's nothing wrong with that, but they call that flavor number one. Flavor number two is the word innovation, which is the first letter capitalized, capital I and the rest lowercase. Now, that innovation isn't as big. It doesn't change the world. It doesn't make the cover of a magazine. And maybe those happen two or three times a year, but they're really important. Like maybe your sales go up 32% as a result, or your efficiency rate goes up, or your close rate in front of a jury goes up. Those are mild, medium level innovations. And then think about innovation, all lowercase. I call those big little breakthroughs. Sometimes we call them micro innovations. I wouldn't say that there's any one of those are better or worse than the others. And by the way, if you want an all caps innovation, spend a lot of time practicing all lowercase innovation. So I think that these kind of work together. I don't think there's one right answer. I think what we should do is if you're tackling a problem, maybe you have a, a skill, a, a, an ideation session at all three. So let's say the challenge is how do I get more clients in my law firm? Well, maybe start out with all lowercase. What are, what are ways that I could get one more client? One more client every decade. That seems pretty easy and that's accessible. And maybe it doesn't feel so foreboding and overwhelming. It gives us the courage to actually begin the ideation process. Then after that session, maybe you say, okay, what about the middle one? Capital I, rest lowercase. Is there a way we could, we could grow our firm by 15% next year? Yeah, that would take some pretty big thinking, but it doesn't take you know, inventing a life-saving drug therapy. And then after that, maybe then you go to all caps and say, hey, if I wanted to triple the size of my law firm in the next 90 days, what would that look like? So I actually think that aiming at different levels is sort of adjusting your aperture in different ways and approaching a problem from all three of those perspectives is actually more productive than selecting only one. And what's interesting, even on the study of innovation, so you've, you've approached this, I would argue, in uh, ironically innovative ways in the sense that there's a book that you wrote, Hacking Innovation, where you studied hackers and kind of the under, underworld of like cyber criminals, if you will, which is an interesting perspective to, to look at. What, what were some of the things that you learned from that? I was looking for an innovative way to talk about innovation. And I started thinking, like, who's innovative on the planet? And it led me to hackers. And, you know, obviously hackers are a gigantic threat and cybersecurity is, is, is probably more of a threat than, than a military strike. And I, by the way, I'm no way condoning cybercrime, but it's not so easy to hack into a bank. You know, it takes a lot of creativity to hack into a government. And so I started thinking of hacking as a methodology, as a toolkit, not really right or wrong, just as a toolkit. And in that context, hackers are wildly creative. So I actually spent three years studying hackers. I interviewed criminals and ex-felons. I interviewed cybersecurity experts. I interviewed uh, everybody you could imagine, law enforcement, trying to decode how do hackers think and how do they act. 
And it was really fascinating. Again, uh, no way trying to glamorize crime. But to me, hacking isn't some nefarious person in a hoodie trying to do bad things. Hacking could be the way you grow your law firm or the way you serve clients. You could hack the environment or you could hack your health. So again, hacking itself isn't right or wrong. It's just a methodology. So what I learned to answer your question was a lot of things, frankly. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting, that uh, a philosophy that hackers use, I call it compasses over maps. So if you are in your team using a maps approach, you want to go from my hometown of Detroit to L.A., if I go to Google Maps and I type that in, it tells me exactly what to do. I can turn my brain off. I get on the highway, go 14 miles, make a left, take a right, hop on this freeway. I don't even have to think anymore. The problem is, what happens if there's an accident? What happens if there's construction? I'm out of luck. Hackers don't use maps. They use compasses. In other words, they set their sight on an end destination, in my case, from Detroit to L.A., but then they don't have to have the map planned out in perfection before they get on the road. They get on the road and figure it out. And so when they're, they're always adjusting, they're, they're making decisions along the way. They make choices in the face of ambiguity. They don't always have the answers before they drive forward. And, and what this does is it allows them to inject creativity every step along the way. So if they're trying to hack into a bank, they don't just say, well, this is my plan. It either works or doesn't. They might try 60 different approaches before getting one to even create the slightest bit of vulnerability. Then once they crack in vulnerability number one, then they try 85 different new things. So they're constantly experimenting. They're constantly failing along the way. They're constantly moving forward without a detailed map. And that's actually a really interesting way to think about growing our law firms or our, even our families in our communities. It's not having to have everything in a, in a 70-page binder with tabs and numbers, getting started and figuring it out as you go. And as you've gone, obviously, into, into multiple different industries and, and have expanded, you know, just looking for different types of innovation, like different areas of creativity, how important do you feel it is for businesses to look to other industries outside of their own, just in terms of quite literally just to be able to learn about innovation and to be able to gain inspiration? That, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's actually one of the, my favorite techniques, and it's been a successful technique for, for decades. I call it the borrowed idea. So... Very often, we become tunnel-visioned and insular in our own field. So if you run a personal injury law firm, you probably study other personal injury law firms. But why not look outside of our field? And the real core question we have to ask ourselves is, where else? Where else? Where else is the opportunity that you're trying to grab or the challenge you're trying to fix happening outside of our field? Is a similar thing happening in healthcare or in sports or in the arts? And maybe you can say, is there something that I could borrow from another part of life and apply right here to my law firm? An example would be if you have peak periods of the year in your law firm. Let's say you're a, a, you know, a tax attorney and, and how do I deal with tax season? Instead of only studying other tax attorneys, why not go outside and say, well, how do they load and unload cruise ship pa passengers at peak periods in their business? And so the notion is you go sort of spotting for where else is around the world, look for inspiration there, bring it back home. Those borrowed ideas can make all the difference in the world. According to Josh, a creative mindset means having a mindset of discovery, always being curious, always learning, and always leveling up. On that note, I asked Josh what he's doing these days to stay ahead. I've been really going deep on, on my own creative efforts. You know, I spend a lot of time generally on the road uh, doing keynote speeches. I give over 100 a year. I sit on a bunch of boards and I invest in startups. But with, with the downtime right now, uh, I'm working on a new book, as mentioned. So I've really been sort of in the, in the artist studio working on that. And uh, I'm just taking the time to sort of reinvent the next chapter. If you think about a band, let's say the Rolling Stones, they go out and tour for 18 months. And, and when they're out on tour, they're, they're performing music that they created previously. 
Then they take a year off and then they, they create a bunch of new stuff and then they go back out on tour and, and, and tour that new stuff. It's a cycle of performance creation, performance creation. So while I didn't raise my hand and ask for a, 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 a pandemic, I'm just trying to use this downtime in, a, in the manner that the Rolling Stones w- would use their, their time, is to focus on creativity, to focus on writing the next script that we can perform for years to come. And with everything that you've done, I mean, it's, it's actually quite impressive, not just the multiple companies, uh, but also the books and, every, and even the keynotes. What are some of the things that you do just from a daily habit standpoint that keep you operating in peak state? Like what are those, you know, almost like those guardrails that like go against complacency that keep you going and, and allow you to, to essentially operate at a peak level? One is I try to every day sort of recharge my creativity. And so think about you and I, I drink coffee. I don't know if you do, most people do. And so you wake up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee and that kind of recharges your mind, your brain, your, your physical body. But what recharges your creativity? And so a cup of coffee doesn't take all day. It's just a little thing. But what's the equivalent of a cup of coffee for you, for your creativity? Mine is listening to jazz music, or maybe I'll watch a TED Talk that's inspiring. You know, there's so much negativity that's, that's holding our creativity back, this gravitational force. I try to have an equivalent every day to recharge my creative batteries. Uh, the other thing that I do is I do a lot of tracking. Uh, I use a little habit tracker, and I track everything from food intake to number of times I exercise. I, I, I read every week a lot, so uh, I think I'm on my 11th book so far for this year, and I track it. And then what I did is I have an accountability buddy, a habit buddy, and, who's a part, part of my company, and every week we take a screen grab of our different habits tracked and have to send it to each other to hold each other accountable. So I sort of reverse engineered, what do I want to happen this year, broke it down into eight categories of habits that I track daily, and then I have to share my habit tracker with somebody who's going to hold me to the fire and keep me honest. So I know that sounds actually not that creative. It's more scientific, if you will. But that that actually, that, that way every day I don't have to think about it. I say, yep, these are my habits. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm being held accountable, so I better do them. So from the sound of it, I mean, not only is there a lot of intentionality, but also there's more importantly, more consistency. Yeah, it's consistency for sure. And, and just also, I think the one I didn't hit enough is learning. I, I spend a lot of time learning. I feel like part of my job is to be a professional learner. And it always makes me sad when people like the last book they read was when they graduated college. And whatever you're, the way you learn, I don't care if you read fiction because you're going to learn from that or, or you do different experiences or watch TED Talks or listen to podcasts. But boy, I think it's part of our responsibility to continue to learn and, and continue to elevate our own. Like we can't change the outputs unless we change the inputs. And so I think it's part of the job to get lots and lots of healthy, good inputs so that we can have better outputs. Yeah. And I think there's a quote that if, if you're not embarrassed by the person that you were one year ago, you're not learning enough. So I, I would agree wholeheartedly. So Josh, as we come to a close, obviously this is the Game Changer podcast, but what does being a Game Changer mean to you? I think being a Game Changer to me means the courage to try something new, not the, in the absence of fear as mentioned, but, but in the presence of it. Uh, being a Game Changer is holding yourself to a standard that isn't the person sitting next to you, but it's the standard of your own potential. It's somebody who's willing to, you know, kind of think about how do I want to be remembered, not how do I want to get through the day. And so it's challenging yourself to make the biggest possible impact in the world, challenging yourself to be the best version of yourself, giving yourself permission sometimes to screw something up and dust off and get back after it. And also being a game changer, I think, is, is what we've talked about is re- reinventing yourself early and often. I want to give a huge thanks to Josh Linkner for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Josh mentioned that practicing creativity is what recharges it. It's a skill that you have to continuously practice to sharpen and improve, otherwise it'll deteriorate. 
You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Josh Linkner, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when I'll sit down with best-selling author, speaker, and the CEO of Scribe Media, JT McCormick. We're going to take a deep dive into the importance of maintaining perspective and leveraging gratitude when facing seemingly insurmountable challenges. I remember the moment, man, thinking to myself, wow, president of a software company can't write code. CEO of a publishing company can't spell. And, And I was just like, man, God bless America. This is a story you will not want to miss. We'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,